You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. So in getting prepped for this interview, hi everybody by the way, it's Jean Chatsky. I was thinking back almost 30 years. Now, you all don't know me all that well, so you don't know that in my misguided youth, I did some theater in high school and then again in college. And freshman year of college at the at the University of Pennsylvania, I was cast in a big part, actually. We were doing the musical Wonderful Town. There, It's the story of two sisters from Ohio who make their way to Greenwich Village and have to deal with all the shenanigans that go on there in Greenwich Village in the 1960s. And I was playing this role, Eileen, who was an ingenue and, and got to sing a lot about things like, like love and Ohio. We did actually have a song about Ohio. And college papers are not necessarily the friendliest places to be, as I learned when I went to eventually write for mine. But the review came out of Wonderful Town by a woman whose name I still remember to this day, and and that'll just tell you something about how the review went. But it basically said that I was squeaky and that the woman who played my sister was gruff. And and I'm just reminded of that because my guest today, Chris Hogan, has the best radio voice many of us have ever heard. And he's not gruff, but boy, oh boy, is he Barry White-ish, if that was a word-ish. Chris Hogan is is with me on the line. He's joining me by Skype. He is the best-selling author of the book Retire Inspired. He's host of the Retire Inspired podcast. You may recognize him from the Dave Ramsey family. He's been at Ramsey Solutions now for more than a decade. Chris, I built your voice up, so give it to me good. Yes, ma'am, you did. And it is an honor to be with you. It is an honor. It is an honor to have you here. You're going to make me sit here and talk at the low <laughs> end of my range. So I, I know this is your first book. How's it been for you? It has been phenomenal. Uh, Gene, the feedback from people that I'm hearing on this retirement message, people are believing that they can do it. Um, we have a lot of people that are waking up and looking at it uh, because they understand it's their dreams. It's about the things that they want to accomplish for themselves and their family. And so I'm so excited that the, the message is encouraging people and empowering them to take the right steps. Which is which is great, because when we look at the data, when we look at how Americans are feeling about retirement, they're feeling scared. They're feeling fearful that their money won't last as long as they do. In fact, survey after survey after survey, it is the chief concern for older Americans. It it tops loneliness and boredom and even declining health. I'm sure you hear this all the time, particularly from women. 
where's it coming from and how do we deal with it? Well, I think the fear, you know, as you start to look at it, I think fear is a very real thing. Um, when you start to look and it, what it boils down to is concern. Um, people are beginning to become more aware and they're concerned that they don't have enough. Uh, this is coming from, I, I think, this this lifestyle of allowing our wants to get in the way of our needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're so consumeristic. You know, we're the most marketed to country on the planet uh, via social media, commercials, even radio. There are commercials everywhere telling us about stuff that we need to have or things that we should have been doing already. And I think if we don't have our wits about us and we don't understand understand what it is we're doing and the process by which we're doing it, it's so easy to get knocked off course. And time goes so fast that if you're not aware of this and you don't take control, you could be 10 or 15, 20 years down the road and be way behind. Well, when you look at at retirement, you say it's not an age. You say there's a number that everybody has to get their fingers around, wrap their brains around, and you call it your RIQ. So how do I know what my RIQ is? How do I calculate it? And then we'll talk about how I get there. Sure. Fantastic. Well, it's one of those. The RIQ stands for the Retire Inspired Quotient. What I wanted to do was to boost people's IQ about retirement. And so starting to look at this and understand so many people think that at age 65 or 62 or 70, that a magic fairy is going to show up in the form of Social Security and just take care of us. And I did some research on it. And the average kind of payout for Social Security is right around 13 to 16,000 a year. Well, you start to realize that that doesn't even cover the average mortgage payment or average used car payment. And so Social Security alone won't be enough. And so what I wanted people to do was to start to look at this and understand what's the big number you're chasing. And then I broke it down with the RIQ on how you can arrive at that number, because if you don't know what it is you're chasing, it's hard to know if you're making progress. So so let's get tactical for people. How much is typically enough? How much of your pre-retirement income should you be worried about replacing? And how much of that will Social Security cover? Well, in looking at it, I think it's one of those, it's all going to depend on a necessary lifestyle as well as debt load. And so what I did with the RIQ tool, which this is a free tool at my website, chrishogan360.com. Again, it's free. But what I did was start with how much are you going to want to live on per month? And so with that, the tool is set up where you plug in how much you want to live on per month and how many years till you plan to retire and how much you currently have saved. And, and what the calculator will do is kind of show you, based off those three little data points, how what your big number is. And then it's going to break it down a step further. And if you're behind, it's going to show you how much you need to be investing now to make sure that you're able to get to that number. Now, I want you, Gene, I know you are a hardcore economist and, and number person, so I, want to let you, <laughs> I am I, so not an economist. Let's let's just set the record straight there. I got a C in in microeconomics, and I was proud to get it. Well, I I struggled there as well. But here's the thing: with the tool, you can control the the rate of return as well as your withdrawal rate. So it's essentially a tool. I wanted people to start to feel more comfortable with this and understand it, so they can start to take action. And that's truly what this tool is all about. When you're talking about us as the most consumption-heavy society, knowing that most people are not saving enough, that we've got a real gap, 
in terms of the retirement needs of most people and the retirement assets of most people. How do you get yourself from point A to point B, from the point where you see something, you want to buy it, you actually buy it, to I see something, I want to buy it, I'm not going to buy it because I know that my retirement is more important? I think the key with that, in in order to be able to do that adult thing, as I call it, where I know the difference between a want and a need, it really boils down to my budget and my progress. Uh, for example, you know, if if you look at this thing and you un- understand yourself, and you can go look in your closet and find 52 other things that you bought trying to make yourself feel better, and it didn't work, what you're doing now is you're doing emotional purchases. And what I want people to do is do more planned purchases. Uh, I had a lady. I was at a book signing in Denver and she told me, she goes, Chris, you don't want anybody to have any stuff. You want us to save everything. And I said, no, ma'am, I just don't want stuff to have you. And what I mean by that is if you're budgeting and you set aside some money and you want to buy something, so be it. But make sure you're doing the things that you need to do to make sure you're on progress and on track for your retirement dreams. We know that we've got an audience that is wide ranging. We get mostly women, some guys, and we appreciate the guys. Um, but we get millennials, we get Gen Xers, we get baby boomers. Let, let's talk about generation by generation. If you are a millennial, what's your number one move to kickstart your retirement savings? Oh, my gosh. If you're a millennial, you've got time ahead of you. What I want you to do is to get yourself out of debt. If you have student loan debt or credit card debt, uh, get yourself free from there. Then I want you to get plugged into a 401k as soon as possible. Now, 401k, all that is, is an employee sponsored retirement plan. It allows you to put money away pre-tax for your future. But when you put money in there, don't touch it. That's not a house down payment fund. It's not a wedding fund. This is a fund for your dreams. You want people to pay off their student loans before they go into a 401k? I would tell them, I urge people to get intentional. And we call it gazelle intensity. Uh, For people that are super intense, they see that the debt is a thief. Um, I tell people interest that you pay is a penalty, interest that you earn is a reward. So if you have debt right now, you're being penalized. So for the super intense, they will pause from saving in the 401k to attack the debt first. Uh, Others that are not as intense, they'll enroll in a 401k as well as attack debt. Either way, get the debt out of your life. When when you're looking, though, and and I just want to sort of come back to this for a second, because I think it's an important point. When you're looking at student loan debt at 4%, 5%, and a 401k that has an employee match at 50 cents on the dollar or even 25 cents on the dollar, shouldn't you be trying to maximize your return by capturing those matching dollars rather than busting your behind to pay off the student loan? Well, there are two school of thoughts with that. And, and you start to look at that. And mathematically speaking, you look at that and you say, yes, uh, obviously, you don't want to pass up on the free money uh, with the match. But the flip side of that is when people that have student loan debt or credit card debt, credit card debt, especially, you know, that hovers anywhere from 12 to 20 percent, uh, it's really choking people's lifestyle there. It's, it's taking the energy, all their hardworking dollars are going toward that debt. So if I can get people to look at debt and see it for what it is, it's not a tool. It's not a friend. It's more of a frenemy. If you start to see that for what it is, then you understand if I can get myself out of debt, I give myself a which then allows me to build more toward my dreams. As far as people who are slightly older, if you're a Gen Xer, and I'm, I'm right on the cusp of the Gen Xers and the baby boomers, 
and you know you haven't come as far as you should as far as saving for your retirement, what's your move? I would tell them to, first of all, let's take a collective deep breath. Um, let's acknowledge that maybe you're not where you want to be, but let's start to take some action. What I mean by that is, what is it that you can do to start to move positively in the direction you want to go? By that meaning, I'm talking about downgrading lifestyle. Um, I've had people even go extreme where they've sold homes. Um, I've had couples that take on second jobs to start to put that money toward retirement. And so what I want them to do is to understand that action is the thing that will motivate you best. Action is the thing that will get you moving. So let's identify your options and start to take steps immediately. We're not going to sit still and we can't keep looking back wishing we'd have done things different. We've got to maximize the now. And I would assume that this is true in triplicate for baby boomers who are, are even further behind. Yes, ma'am. Uh, because, you know, with baby boomers, you know, they, they are essentially right now feeling the crunch. I call them the sandwich generation uh, because they're trying to launch kids and get them moving and going. But they also have parents that are aging. And so they're really feeling the squeeze. And, and my heart goes out to them. And that's where I really want them to start to really look and make some decisions. Because the one thing I don't want to be, Gene, to my kids later is a burden. You see, if my and my wife and I, if we don't work a plan and we don't set ourselves up, we end up burdening our kids because they'll have to make the decisions for us. Yeah, no no question. And, and I think from everybody's perspective, if we can get ourselves to a place where we can take care of ourselves in our retirement and our kids can take care of their kids and help them get through school, everybody will be a lot happier. I want to come back and talk about couples and how couples can tackle retirement savings together. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve it. We deserve to live the life that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Chris Hogan. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. And that's true whether you're getting married, getting divorced, starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash It's time. We are happy to be here today with Chris Hogan of the Retire Inspired podcast and Retire Inspired, the best-selling book. So for couples who are listening or for our listeners who think, hey, maybe I'll share this one with my nearest and dearest, how often should people be having retirement powwows with their partners, with their spouses. Yeah, I would say, you know, from an overall kind of standpoint, I I think the more we can normalize the discussion, the better off. Um, We know money fights are the number one cause for divorce in North America. And so what I want couples to do is to kind of break down those barriers and start to have discussions. So I would encourage a weekly budget meeting Uh, not a financial summit. We're not sitting there for three hours, but sit down for 30 minutes. That's what my wife and I do every Sunday night, Uh, walk through the budget, the money coming in, what's going out. Uh, And by doing that, what happens is you start to get more familiar. You start to have the more common conversations about it. So it doesn't have to be a one year thing. I would say do it talking about it once a week or just looking at your progress with your investments or whatever once a quarter is a good first step. 
How often do you and your wife fight about money? We don't fight about money anymore. Um, and I say Did anymore. You? Oh, yes. And I'm married to an attorney, so I lost those arguments. Uh, that was, <laughs> I tried to get us to go to arm wrestling, but it didn't work. But it was one of those where what we were doing, we didn't align our goals. Um, we were having individual kind of progress. And so merging that and really starting to look at it as a team instead of looking at my spouse as an opponent is a game changing moment uh, when you start to talk about your dreams. So for your listeners out there, if your spouse is reluctant to talk about money or to talk about retirement, ask them about their dreams. Ask them about the things they've seen or always wanted to accomplish, the places they wanted to visit. We all have dreams inside of us. And so what we have to do is fan the flames of those because we can get so busy with kids and our jobs and our family that we can forget about ourselves. And so I think having that kind of conversation is a great icebreaker and it can really start to help you connect more with your spouse. I think that's so true. And I also think that we don't necessarily have the exact same dreams right. as our spouses, and that's okay. Yes, it is. How do you get your spouse on the page with your dreams at the same time you're getting on the page with hers? Well, I think if you're having a conversation and you're talking about something that excites you um, and this person loves you, I mean, truly loves you, they're going to get excited because they're going to see you light up and, and they're going to want you to be able to do that. And if you in turn listen to what they want to do, because dreams are going to be different. I mean, my wife wants to travel all around the country and I want to travel all around our house. You know, we're like wired <laughs> different, but there's a merging in there. And uh, that's what marriage is. It is a negotiation. It's emerging. Um, and it's more about the family first and yourself last. So I was scrolling through some of your past podcasts. I came on your Retire on $10 a Day podcast. Tell us how this works, because I know to a lot of people that just sounds impossible. It, it does sound crazy. But what I was doing was breaking it down and really starting to look at really being money smart. Um, I, I want people to start to really look and understand and take steps to help themselves. For example, if we start to look at just our daily spending habits, I think it would uh, astonish us to realize how much money can just be leaving us on a daily basis if we're not aware? For example, the fancy coffee shops or cafes, uh, eating lunch, uh, maybe eating out at dinner or whatever it is. And so food is the culprit, boy. Food is definitely a culprit. But it's one of those where you start to look. For example, I stopped going to the fancy coffee shops uh, about two years ago. Um, and what I do now is I brew my own coffee at home uh, and I bring it. And, and, and it, that in itself, I'm saving myself almost $200 a month just in mm -hmm. that one step. And so if you do that, bring lunch three days a week, I understand you may eat out and go with some coworkers, but don't get in the habit of doing that every day. So that $10 a day, if you introduce it to compound interest and time, your two favorite best friends in the money world, what that can do is really start to grow and help you get closer to your dreams. You also said in this podcast that you're in the habit of saving your change. How much do you save by saving your change? And do you still do this, by the way? I actually do still do this. Um, I got in the habit of saving my change. It was probably in our first year of marriage. Uh, what I did was I'm a very goal-oriented person. And a friend of mine had given me a water bottle. You know, it's like one of those old-school big water bottles, the blue ones yep. in your office. And he told me that he try he's trying to fill it up in a year. And I 
thought, well, I can do this. I mean, I'm sure I can. And so I got a course halfway through and then we ended up doing something or needing it for an emergency. And so we went in it. And so what I did was establish that habit earlier in my life. And so I still to this day collect my change annually. I've got a red bucket in my closet. Okay. And so what I do is I empty my change into that each day. And at the end of the year, I get, I take the money out. My boys, I have three sons. They help me sort it. And then we roll it. And then we take it to the bank. 50% of it goes into their individual savings accounts. 50% goes into our retirement fund. And how much is it typically at the end of the year? It is. It, it amazes me how much money it is. For example, uh, just this past year, change-wise, it was close to $2,000. Whoa. Now, do you just go around shopping with a lot of cash and getting change on purpose? <laughs> I, you know what? Yes, I do. Yeah, because that's a lot of change. It is a lot of change. And that's almost a year and a half's worth uh, because the last year we the year before last, I didn't count at all. So that's kind of almost like a year and a half. But I do make it and being very intentional about taking my change uh, and putting it in there. And it's one of those things in doing that. I do shop only with cash. Um, I use my debit card sometimes. But most of the times if we're shopping for Christmas or birthdays or any kind of uh, special occasion, I'm utilizing cash. And so I'll stuff some dollars or $5 bills down in the bucket every once in a while. My uh, my friend, one of my friends from the Today Show, he's a cameraman there. He and his wife save every $5 bill that they get. When he gets a $5 bill walking around, oh, he has oh. to give it to her. Like and then that. at the end of the year, they take all those $5 bills and it pays for the holidays. I like that. See, I think little things like that, Gene, it can motivate us. Um, and I want to encourage your listeners out there to figure out what it is for you. Is it saving your change? Is it saving $1 bills or $5 bills? But be intentional about how you're using that money going forward. I, I think we don't realize as individuals how much power we can have over over our money, money will obey. We just have to tell it what to do and where to go. Absolutely right. I'm going to let that be the last word. Chris Hogan, thank you so much. The podcast for anybody who wants to tune in is Retire Inspired. Thank you so much for having me. What a voice, huh? What a voice. I am obsessed with it. He is a a tall gentleman, I believe. I've not met him in person, but I believe he's very tall. I think he played football. Really? Yeah, he used to be a football player, so I imagine him being very tall, big guy. Yeah. Sounds like it. His sounds voice sounds like, like he's it. Sounds like so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Amazing voice in my next life, maybe. Yeah. It's so funny. I liked your deep voice at the beginning, too, trying Hello. to match his. Yes. Anyway, Kelly, as you can hear, has joined me in the studio. We're going to look into the mailbox, see what yes. we've got from Twitter and Facebook and our emails. Mm -hmm. Thank you for all of them. We have our first question from Emily Cahill on Twitter. She tweeted, my first credit card is from a clothing store that I don't shop at anymore. Should I close it? Hashtag Her Money Podcast. Awesome. Emily, thank you. It's a really good question. In fact, it's such a good question that I answered it this morning for somebody on the train on my commute into the office. Generally, store cards don't carry the same weight that bank cards do when they're being factored into your credit score. But you're right to be concerned because it was the very first card in your wallet. And so here's what I would do. I would look at my credit score. 
and see where it is. If you're not using it anymore and you don't want to carry it around, often if you just don't use a store card, they'll close it on you, and that's fine. You can sort of let it happen. Just make sure that you've got a a well-rounded portfolio before you do this. And I wouldn't make any major moves in the 6 to 12 months before I apply for a car loan or a mortgage. But generally, you should be okay. Do retail credit cards, on average, have higher APRs than traditional or regular credit cards? They do. They do. They have higher um, – generally, it's been running about 2, 3 percentage points higher than regular cards. One thing, though, that you do have to be a little bit careful of is that the lines – have begun to blur a little bit. So there are some store credit cards that you can use other places and they act like American Express cards, for example. So just be sure you know what you're closing when you're closing it. Mm, Good to know. Our next question is from Melissa. She sent us an email. She writes, Hi, Jean. Love your podcast. Thank you. I am strongly considering a career change and I'm interested in pursuing some type of financial planning or coaching. I'm interested in helping people get control of their money, get out of debt, and find money within their budget to invest rather than managing investments. I have no work experience in this field and have an unrelated bachelor's degree. Any suggestions of how to start? Um, absolutely. And and let me just say, Melissa, and we, we talked about this on our podcast with Kathy Murphy, the president of Fidelity. You should take a listen to that one if you haven't listened to it. Financial planning is, I think, a wonderful career for women because there's so much about it that has to do with relationship building and having a conversation and helping people make their way to their own goals. Are there numbers involved? Absolutely. Can't get around the numbers, but there's a lot more than the numbers. And I also think that for somebody who has a busy life, whether it involves kids or other commitments or parents, it offers a a degree of flexibility if you decide that you're going to be the sort of financial advisor who opens an office on their own or does it on their own. A couple of places to look. First of all, most of the major financial institutions, many of the major financial institutions have training programs where they bring in and train financial advisors. The AFCPE, which is the Association for Financial Planning, Counseling, and Education, certifies coaches. They're not planners, but they're coaches. And if you're more interested in helping people budget, deal with debt, things like that, rather than helping them develop their investment strategy, that may be a way to go. You can also go back to school and get a a degree. In financial planning, you may decide that that's the route that you want to go. But I would probably, before I go back to school full-time, I'd take one class. Just just take a basic financial planning class, see how it feels on you, see how it fits, and, and that'll give you more information about which road you want to go down. And our final question is from Mara on Facebook. I want to give my goddaughter some kind of money gifts as she grows up. She's only six months old now. When I was a child, I got savings bonds. Are those still a thing? Is there something else similar to that that I can give as gifts for her birthdays and other life events? You absolutely can. I I wouldn't go the savings bond route. I would probably look at a 529 college savings account, and you can make 
contributions to that account over her entire lifetime, and that can be used to pay for college. You should probably open the account in her name or in the name of her parents rather than your name. Um, it just makes it easier from the parents' perspective down the road for financial aid purposes. There are also ways to give individual shares of stock if you want to grow her investment interest as she grows up. So you can look at websites like Stockpile and GiveAShare.com. And, and those, I think, are pretty good ways to go. Excellent. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And as we take a turn, um, I just want to remind everybody that we love your questions. So please keep them coming. You can find us on Twitter where, as Kelly said, our hashtag is HerMoneyPodcast. You can find us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, at JeanChatsky.com. And I, I always am tempted to say, and wherever um, goods are sold, or something like that, because it sounds like an infomercial. True, where our digital footprint is pretty far and wide. So LinkedIn, Instagram, all the social networks, we are on there. Oh, thank you, Kelly. And let me just point out, we have our book giveaway mm -hmm. coming up. I'm going to add my book to the pile. So for our 50th podcast, we are giving away 50 books, including Age Proof, Living Longer Without Running Out of Money or Breaking a Hip. That is my new book. And um, I'm excited for all of you to have it. You will just need to do what in order to get them? Well, we would love for you to share first and foremost, and you'll notice in our episode descriptions a shareable link that you could start using and sending to your girlfriends, your family, anyone who you think should hear this show, which we hope is many, many people. And the next best thing or the next thing to do is share why or how listening to Her Money has changed your financial life. And you can do so all the places you ask your questions. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Send us an email at jeanchatsky.com. All the same places, just drop us a line and use the hashtag. Use, use the, the hashtag. hashtag. is very helpful. Hashtag Her Money Podcast. And then we'll go from there. Excellent. As we turn into today's Thrive segment, I, our recent conversation with Chris has me thinking about an article I read in the Wall Street Journal on something called behavior information avoidance or strategic ignorance. Both of these are fancy ways of saying what I like to call ostriching or sticking your head in the sand. Because when it comes to your finances and your health, for that matter, you need to know your numbers. You need to have an idea of how much you're going to need in retirement. You need to know your credit score. You need to know how much you're spending on a daily basis. And as the headline put it, you need to face the facts. And yet so often we just ostrich and we resist them even when we know they're important. Why do we do this? We do it because we want to think of ourselves as smart people so we avoid information that challenges that. For example, finally calculating how much you spend on eating out, as Chris Hogan was saying, might shock you or guilt you into doing the opposite, but you love eating out. So you continue to find ways to rationalize it while your savings account continues to starve, for lack of a better word. If this sounds familiar and you know you need to look in the mirror on a few things, researchers first suggest of thinking of your values. In other words, what's important to you? 
This puts the information that you don't want to hear into perspective. So, for example, to continue with our dining out example, let's just say you realize travel is more important to you, and if you cut back on dining out, you'd save hundreds of dollars more for that trip to Thailand that you want to take. Your values make your resources seem larger. Also, remind yourself you have control. Your money doesn't run you. You should be running your money. Research shows that doing this could help you stop avoiding that unwanted information. And finally, ask yourself why you're avoiding whatever information it is in the first place. An honest answer to this question could lead you to being more honest with yourself. Overall, thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Chris Hogan for a terrific conversation, and to all of you for your great questions. I also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when Betty Lou of Bloomberg Television will be with us. She's got a new project that she'll be talking about that helps people get to the place they want to be in their careers, which for many people is running the company. Please keep listening, and we'll talk soon.